Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the third Sunday after Trinity, July 3rd, 2022, is preached by Matthew Johnson. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Please rise and uh, I will read our text, which is uh, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Please be seated. When was the last time you found yourself somewhere that you did not belong? Perhaps you opened the wrong door and interrupted something important. Were you in the wrong lane when your exit came up because you were too lazy to move over into slower traffic? Were you stuck in a lunchtime meeting at work that could easily have been somewhere else because in the end it had nothing to do with you? I thought relatively hard about this and trying to come up with such an occurrence from my life and two things stopped me from using that from my own life. One is I couldn't come up with anything that was both good enough to share and that at the same time I would want to share. Because wrong place, wrong time isn't typically complimentary of the person telling the story. And two, we're not really asking here about a time that you or I made some dumb mistake. Rather, we're asking about a time when we were confronted with a situation that we had to pause and think, what am I doing here? I don't want to die. Our text actually hints at such a story, so we'll just use that story. Isaiah here mentions King Uzziah. King Uzziah was a king of Judah. For the most part, he honored God and did a pretty good job during his 52-year reign. But over the course of that reign, he became more powerful, more famous, and more prideful. He one day made a fatal mistake. He believed his own hype. He believed it enough that he took a censer and he pushed his way past the 81 priests who were asking him what he thought he was doing, and he entered the temple itself with the purpose of burning incense before God. Do you know who was allowed to do that? That's right, the priests. Not the king, not anyone except the priests. It's not allowed. And the priests are in the middle of reminding him of this when on his forehead a clear patch of leprosy appears. And in a combination of horror and terror, he both runs from and is driven out of the temple by mortified priests. His newly acquired disease forces him into a life apart from everyone that he cares about, and it's with him until he dies. 
sobering stuff. Second Chronicles 26 summarizes it for us. It says, he was greatly helped until he became powerful, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Our text is going to relate an event that occurred that is vaguely similar to what befell Uzziah the day he listened to his pride. Vaguely similar, and yet with stark differences and with a different outcome. Uzziah went into Solomon's original temple, which by all accounts was a remarkable place. But all of that pales in comparison to Isaiah having this vision of God in his actual throne room. And can you imagine? The Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple. What a magnificent sight that must have been. We're also presented with these unique creatures called seraphim, whose only job appears to be related to extolling God's greatness nonstop, all the time. It is from the seraphim that we are told that God is not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. I found a note scrawled in my first Bible that I think goes back 20 years to Bible school and to Jerry Holmes's class on the major prophets. I'm pretty sure that's where the note is from. And this note states that the adjective holy is the most commonly used attribute of God in the Old Testament. It's outnumbering all the others combined. When you realize how many attributes, uh, characteristics are attributed to God, almighty, immutable, omniscient, loving, compassionate, jealous, good, uh, the use of holy comes into better focus. Now, I could tell you that I really, 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 really love my wife. And I do. But while that's not a great use of the English tongue, there's not anything actually wrong with me saying that in English, grammatically speaking. There are more eloquent ways to say it, but I can use really as many times as I want. After a few times, of course, every further time I use it, it loses the impact of what I'm trying to tell you. Now, Hebrew is very different from English. And while the seraphs here could say holy a thousand times, we find they only say it three. If I correctly interpret the mini Hebrew lesson I was reading, and forgive me if I didn't, by people who might know Hebrew who are listening to me, because I don't. It seems to be suggested that in Hebrew, the most you say the same adjective when describing something is three times. If you say someone is holy, 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 the one you're talking about cannot be more holy. Saying it again will add nothing to the level of holiness you are establishing. So you're in a sense saying that they are as holy as it gets. They are as set apart, in a sacred sense, as it gets. And so we can get a taste of how unique and special this holiness of God is. The seraphim cannot even look at God because of it. They're covering their faces. And Isaiah has a vision of all this. He has a first-hand witness to the most spectacularly incredible place on any plane of existence, the personal presence of God. And he is mortified. Through the scriptures, we have the presence of God associated with death. Not always, but many times. The book of Judges tells us that Samson's father, after being visited by an angel, he thought he and his wife were going to die. Numbers tells us the assembly of Israel wandering in the desert was afraid to even enter the tabernacle. God once told Moses, no man can see my face and live. One of David's men merely touches the ark of God and he's struck dead. And of course, in the New Testament on the island of Patmos, John falls down 
when he sees the glorified Jesus. Falls down as dead is what it says. Some of these references, I imagine, Isaiah would have been very aware of. And his response fully reflects the history and the culture behind the seriousness of the idea of being confronted by God's personal presence. And he says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. Other translations, I'm undone, I'm destroyed, I'm cut off, I'm ruined. Why? Why would he say that? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. What's wrong with lips? James tells us the tongue sets on fire the entire course of life and is in its own turn is set on fire by hell. It's a restless evil. Jesus tells us what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And if you can't think of a time when you don't regret something you said, you need to think harder because it can't just be me. Isaiah is concerned that he's a man of unclean lips, and he's from a people of unclean lips. And it's interesting he would cite the people he's associated with as well, but he does. And he cites these two truths as being a very serious problem for him and endangering him as he is apparently in unauthorized space. In our world, some unauthorized places, when you're discovered, you're firmly escorted out. In others, if you're discovered, they put a couple bullets in you and you're rolled out. There are places we are not meant to be of our own accord. And sinful man in the presence of God, that's a problem for sinful man. It's a big problem. So let's note an important detail about Isaiah's declaration here in verse 5. He is not corrected. The seraphs have demonstrated the ability to speak and to be understood by Isaiah. So how come none of them fly down and tell him, listen, Isaiah, relax, you're fine, be cool? Because they're creatures who exist in the presence of God. They're not going to lie to him. They're not going to tell him something is true when it is not true. And on a side note, that's another thing to keep in mind about the nature of God, is he will tell you how it is. And if you've ever been in a dangerous situation or a difficult spot, you agree that in those times you need to know the reality of your situation. And anything less than the absolute truth is not only a discourtesy to you, but it can also be outright dangerous to you. And no one here is disagreeing with Isaiah's statement that he's a sinful creature in God's throne room and that he is, if left to himself in that state, lost. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this declaration of Isaiah's is very much like a confession. The old phrase, confession is good for the soul, is not just something that TV show police detectives say in an interrogation room when they're trying to get someone to sing. I'm sure you know the scriptures to have very purposeful words about confession. Of course, there's the famous verse, uh, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I hope you've taken solace in this verse in the past as I have. And here in Isaiah, I would argue we have a confession of sin. Now, what occurs after a seraph gets involved? The term seraph is from a root word that means to burn. And the same word is associated with sin offerings and judgment. And interestingly enough, the fiery serpents of Numbers 21 that crawled around the Israelite camp and bit people, many of whom died. The action of those same serpent seraphs resulted in a bronze serpent being lifted up on a pole. Do you remember that? Jesus references that in John 3 and makes a direct comparison to himself. The same, same root word, seraph, to burn. 
So upon the confession, a seraph flies to the altar, retrieves a live coal, and touches it to Isaiah's lips. Remember, we were talking about Uzziah earlier. He wasn't allowed anywhere near the earthly altar as a sinful, pride-filled man. He was afflicted with this internal disease called sin, and when he tried to get to the altar, he got inflicted with a visible lethal disease for his trouble before he was run off. And conversely, Isaiah, on the other hand, utters a confession and acknowledgement of his helpless estate, and a direct agent of God goes to the altar for him and has access there on his behalf in a way that Isaiah could never have done for himself. And here's another detail. Isaiah didn't ask for help. He simply saw his life was over and he called it. But let us remember, Paul tells us in Romans 5, that at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't ask for help either. Isaiah is told after the coal touches his lips in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Did you catch the important detail there in that statement? The guilt is taken away, the sin is atoned for. I love these subtle little details that get breezed over when we read something too quickly, but they're really fun to notice. I'll tell you what I mean. My favorite pair of subtle details is also found elsewhere in Isaiah, in 9.6, where it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We've all been to Christmas services, we have heard that verse before. But think about the meaning. The child is physically born and has his starting point, but the son, capital S, son, is given and has no official starting point because Jesus was already around since forever and didn't have his actual first appearance in 6 BC when he was born. It's subtle specifics in the choice of words. So what are the other details here in our text? The guilt is taken away. Guilt can be removed. Guilt is merely recognizing you've done something you regret. If you deal with what you've done that you regret, you don't have to feel guilty. Guilt is a symptom of a deeper problem. Separately, the sin is atoned for. It's not swept under the rug. It's not ignored. It's not shrugged off. It's not, we'll do better next time. It's atoned for. One has their account reconciled. The satisfaction has been made. If it was simply removed, that would suggest God would have to put it down somewhere. But it's not removed, it's atoned for, it's taken care of. Jesus reminds us in Mark 2 that only God can truly forgive sin, and that's what we see here is the work of God and only God. Jesus' death on the cross and everything that led up to it is very interesting from the standpoint that God did not cut any corners. So many of the sacrificial laws and rules from the Old Testament come into play. If you read Exodus and Leviticus, you can get exhausted by the details of presentation, how everything has to be put just right in the tabernacle and preparation, even color scheme and how to do it just so. And then in the New Testament, if you pay attention to the gospel accounts, you see every stipulation required for a legitimate sacrifice to take place fell right exactly where it needed to be. And I mention that in passing because the sacrifice that is so important to us on the behalf of mankind is so dependable in what it entailed and the details involved. We can take comfort in that, how precise the act was 
and the, and the rules and the stipulations that it met. It's very encouraging to know that God is behind the intricacy of the design of the atonement, and it occurred as only God could make it occur. Back to our text. Let me touch on what I take to be the original meaning when Isaiah actually wrote this down. Because I think we would be doing him a slight disservice if it wasn't simply mentioned. I believe Isaiah here is describing his call and authenticating his first five chapters and the rest of his book to come. As one commentator put it, spiritual cleansing for special service to God and not salvation is in view here in this passage. And as far as an original meaning and what Isaiah meant to communicate when he recorded it, I think that's probably fair. Jeremiah in his book early on has his mouth touched as he is launched into ministry. Daniel, after he receives an intense experience, has his mouth touched before he can revive and speak once more. The touching of a mouth for ministry is not unique to Isaiah. So I would say that the original purpose of the original audience is as I have just described. But it's the year 2022. You and I are not reading this in 740 BC when Uzziah died. And we are not part of the kingdom of Judah, which is doing pretty good at the time. We are not worried that the northern kingdom of Israel is going to fall to Assyria within the next 20 years, and that the Assyrians are going to come this way when they're done. So while Isaiah is not consciously talking about Jesus and his work, I think it's okay for us to extrapolate that. And it's okay for us to recognize Isaiah is also recording his own call and the steps God took to prepare him for special service. So what do we take away from Isaiah's experience? What aspects of this event can you and I share? I'll make it brief and say there are two. When we're confronted with the holy character of God, like Isaiah, that should stir us to repentance and confession. And two, we can know that without our even asking for it, upon our declaration that we need him, God takes steps to remove our guilt and atone for our sin in a way that only he can do. And thank God that he does. Amen.